Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. The ultimate proof that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be is the resurrection from the dead. That's how we know. Listen, there are some people who claim to be Christian who deny that Jesus rose from the dead. But the scriptures tell us that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, our faith is in vain. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the Gospel of John. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22, in a message titled, Jesus in the Temple. Now, here's Pastor Brian. Our series is titled, as some of you will remember, Life in His Name. And so that, that's kind of the lens that we're seeking to look at John's gospel through. That's really the lens that he gave us, as we've been reminded each week. John, at the, at the very end, in the 20th chapter, verses 30 and 31, he says there were many, many things that Jesus did that are not written, but these things that he wrote, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, or Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so this incident that we're reading about today, this is one of those things that John strategically places in his gospel that's not in any of the other gospels to the end that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. One writer said regarding this incident here, this visit of Jesus to the temple and this purification of the temple, he said, we should not miss the way this incident fits in with John's aim of showing Jesus to be the Messiah. All his actions here imply a unique relationship with God and the things of God, specifically in this case, the temple. So John is is wanting us to, he's wanting his readers to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And so he takes this story, as I said, that's not mentioned in any of the other gospels, although there is a cleansing of the temple in the other gospels, that cleansing happens at the, the end of the public ministry of Jesus. Now, some people say, oh, it's the same one. John either just took it out of historical context and put it here, or maybe the other gospel writers took it out of the historical context and put it where they put it. But I think the better way to understand it is it's actually two different times that Jesus visited and cleansed the temple. Once at the beginning of his ministry, which is where we would be at here, and then again toward the end, actually at the, in the very last week of his public ministry. And so similar, but yet at the same time, very different things that are happening. Something to note, I mentioned this previously, but something to know that with the exception of the information about John the Baptist, 
because John, the information about John the Baptist is in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke as well. But with the exception of John the Baptist, the first five chapters of John are completely unique. There's no parallel in Matthew, Mark, or Luke to the first five chapters of John. So John is drawing from material that no one else drew from or referred to. John is is obviously, in some ways, he's drawing from his own experience because he was there from the very beginning. So, So he's just telling an aspect of the story that lends itself to his purpose of revealing to us Jesus as the Messiah, but he's telling us things that the others haven't told us. So he tells us about this visit of Jesus to the temple. Now, let's, let's just kind of walk our way through the verses. And the first thing to note is that it is the time of the Passover. The Passover, John's gospel seems to indicate, well, John's gospel actually references three Passovers, possibly four. I don't think the other one is, there's just an unnamed feast that's mentioned. Some people say, oh, this is probably the Passover. I don't think so. I think it's three Passovers, but this is where we get the understanding that Jesus had about a three-year public ministry because there were three Passovers that he specifically attended. And in his, of course, he would have attended Passovers in his early years. We have, we would, we would know that because at the Passover, all of the males were required to come to Jerusalem in celebration of the Passover. There were three feasts each year that all men were to attend in Jerusalem, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And so at the Passover, there would be hundreds of thousands of Jews from all over the world that would make their way back to Jerusalem. So this is the first of the three Passovers that John mentions. Now, the Passover was and still is to this day because Jews, of course, celebrate the Passover today. It was a feast commemorating Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt. So if you want to read the story of the first Passover, go back to Exodus chapter 12, and you remember God is on the the verge of bringing the people out of Egypt. He's brought a series of plagues on the Egyptians that the Pharaoh has not responded to. But the final plague that he's going to bring is that he's going to strike down the firstborn of all in Egypt. And he warns them that he's going to do that, but he instructs his people to take a lamb, to slay the lamb, and to take the blood of that lamb and to put it over the doorpost of their home. And when the angel of judgment passes through to bring the judgment, when he sees the blood, he will pass over that house. Judgment will not come to that house. And so this is what the Jews were remembering each and every year in the first month of their calendar. 
So it's to commemorate, but it was also a prophecy. And so remember early on, earlier when we were looking at uh, the ministry of John the Baptist and when John and Andrew were with him and he points to Jesus and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John was prophetically speaking of that other aspect of the Passover, that it was pointing not just back to what God did in Egypt, but it was pointing forward to what God would do in the future, that he would provide a covering through blood to take care of sin so that judgment would pass over those who put their faith and trust in Jesus. And so that is what is happening here. That's the background at the feast of the Passover. And so in the temple courts, he found people selling. Now, the temple was originally rebuilt when the people returned from the Babylonian captivity, but it was a poor substitute in many ways for what had previously been there. Solomon's temple was magnificent. It was a glorious structure. The second temple, known as Zerubbabel's temple, was from a visual standpoint and from an architectural standpoint and all of that, it was anything but magnificent. It was um, unimpressive. But Herod came along. And in 20 BC, Herod was renowned as a builder. And so in 20 BC, Herod began a remodel of the temple, hoping to ingratiate himself to the Jews. And that remodel that began in 20 BC was not actually completed until 64 AD. And if you know anything about the the timeline, remember it was 70 AD that the temple was destroyed by Titus the Roman. And so it had been completed just six years before it was actually destroyed. But so they're coming now to Jerusalem, to the temple, And it is this temple that by this time had been renovated to such an extent that it would have been by this time very, very impressive. And so Jesus comes in and he notices that there are those who are selling cattle, sheep, and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. And so he made a whip of cords and drove them all out of the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Now, in the second cleansing that Matthew, Mark, and Luke record, he says that he quotes Jeremiah, actually. He quotes Jeremiah saying, 
This was to be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And so he, he drives them out there as well. But here he says, stop making this place into a market. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house has consumed me. So there's just a little, I think it's Psalm 69, which has a messianic thread that runs through it. And, and there's just a sentence in there, zeal for your house has consumed me. The disciples later realized that that 69th Psalm was indeed messianic, and this was part of the prophetic nature of that psalm. And so as Jesus did this, the Jews then responded. And just note this, and we'll probably mention it as we go on. John uses the term Jews. You know, some people have tried to make uh, some big, uh, big argument that, well, you know, the New Testament is and especially John, he's very anti-Jewish because he keeps referring to the Jews in a negative way. Well, let's just not forget that John is a Jew and everybody around him is a Jew. Why does he say the Jews? This is John's way of referring to the leadership of Judea. You see, the people were not, all of them were not called the Jews until later in history. They're Israelites, but the Judeans, they were the ones who primarily came back into the land after the Babylonian captivity. And so the title Jew, which is derived from Judah or Judea, that became the way they were referred to. But John uses it very, very specifically. He's talking about the leaders, the rulers of Judea. And so when he says the Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? And so this is where we see the absolute uniqueness of John. John tells us that Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Destroy this temple. Who gave you authority to do this to the temple? Jesus says, destroy this temple. Now, he's speaking, obviously, cryptically. He means one thing. They mean something else. But he's using this as a moment to actually prophesy what is going to happen. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? Give us a break. That's pretty much the tone. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, just again, a little bit of background. So, Jesus goes into the temple. He sees this marketplace that they've set up. Now, there was a practical reason for this because people that were coming from outside of Israel for the Passover, it would be a little bit difficult for them to bring all the animals with them for the sacrifice and so forth. So it was practically 
probably a good decision originally to provide them with sacrificial animals that they could that they could purchase. But like so many things that maybe have a good idea when they start, it had just quickly become corrupted. And it was no longer about facilitating the worshipers. It was about the high priestly family making money and getting rich off of this. That's exactly what they were doing. This became known this whole marketplace thing that was set up became known as the bazaars of Annas. Now remember, Annas and Caiaphas were the high priest at the time. Annas was the older one. He was the father-in-law to Caiaphas. So this is like, they set up a family business in the temple. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, he wrote this regarding Annas. He said, Annas was a great hoarder up of money who by open violence, robbed the common priest of their official revenues. The Talmud, the Talmud, which is the Jewish compilation of all different kinds of things, the Talmud records a curse which a distinguished rabbi pronounced upon the high priestly family whose sons were the treasurers, sons-in-law were the assistant treasurers, and whose servants beat the common people with sticks. So this was a nightmare. It was an exploitation of the people. And so, again, like what probably started out as a good idea, it goes bad really quickly, and they put a high exchange rate on if you're going to change your money. If you were going to purchase a clean animal, they would add an exorbitant amount onto that. Again, this was all a a money-making scheme. And so as Jesus would say the second time, you have turned my father's house, which is to be a prayer house, you've turned it into a den of robbers. That's exactly what happened. But notice here, and this is, again, going back to, to John wanting to show that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus refers to the temple as my father's house. And you know what he was saying when he said my father's house? He was saying my house. Why have you taken my house? Because in that culture, you know, in our culture, we we will make a strong distinction between father and son. And in that culture, obviously, there was a distinction. But part of the father and son imagery is that there's a oneness between them. So Jesus, when he says this, he is claiming to have authority over the temple. That's his claim, that he has authority over the temple. Now, it's so interesting because... There is a passage in Malachi. Now, Malachi, in in your Bible and mine, Malachi is the very last book of the Old Testament, right? In the Jewish scriptures, if you have a Jewish Bible, it's Malachi is the last of the prophets, but it's not the very last of the Old Testament scriptures because they end on a chronological note with the end of Second Chronicles. 
they end at the period of the Babylonian captivity. But in the scroll of the prophets, the very last book would be Malachi. And this is what Malachi prophesied. And think about it in in regard to what we just read Jesus did. Behold, God is speaking, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. That's what happened right here. That's why Jesus does what he does and says what he says, because they're in his house. Now, their response, of course, was, Who gave you this authority? Who do you think you are to come in here and do this? And and again, this is interesting because this is at the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus. So he was not yet that well-known. He was known, but he wasn't yet that well-known. But he's beginning to put himself forward to the to the corrupt leadership of the nation as someone who has authority. So their question is, who gave you this authority? And the answer, destroy this temple. And John tells us that Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. Jesus said, in other words, kill me. You want to know what my authority is? Kill me and I'll come back to life. That's my authority. So what Jesus was doing there is he was pointing us forward to the ultimate evidence of his Messiahship. The ultimate proof that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be is the resurrection from the dead. That's how we know. Listen, there are some people who claim to be Christian. There are some people who actually hold positions of authority, professorships, and things like that in so-called Christian seminaries who deny that Jesus rose from the dead. They just flat out don't believe that he did. But... The scriptures tell us that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, our faith is in vain. So so from the biblical standpoint, you have no basis to have a seminary if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, let alone be a professor at one. But there are those who have turned away from the, the biblical faith and embraced some other version of Christianity that doesn't have a resurrected Jesus. For the month of May, Back 
to Basics Radio is offering a book titled Basic Christianity by John Stott. In our increasingly global culture, issues of social justice are frequently headlined in all the major news outlets. But one universal topic is just as frequently avoided, the universal ramifications of the unpopular subject, sin. Sin has enslaved all humanity, and the imagery of slavery appropriately captures the effects that sin has upon all of us. It destroys relationships, families, societies, and nations. Sin affects every social structure within our global culture, and the Bible only gives one hope for the abolition of the consequences of sin. And John Stott presents this hope clearly in this month's resource. If you have recognized the consequences of sin in your own life and are longing for freedom from both its grasp and its consequences, or if you know somebody who has, you need to get this month's resource from Back to Basics. The book Basic Christianity by John Stott is our gift to say thank you for your donation to Back to Basics. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue next time with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the Gospel of John. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.